Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. Chirpy Bird helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIP score to maximize their Medicare reimbursements. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with Sarah Ratner, co-founder of Proximal Health. Sarah is an expert on CMS star ratings, and today she shares how technology is tied to reimbursement. In this episode, she helps us get a better understanding of what goes into star ratings and how healthcare is complicated, regardless of the angle you look at it. So let's take a listen. I am um, currently a healthcare executive. I am consulting in the government program space and also starting a healthcare technology company. I'm the co-founder of that. I grew up as a healthcare M&A lawyer, actually, but um, that's a secret. and Most people don't want to know that, um, that that could be held against me, actually but quickly migrated in-house to work for various companies, ultimately becoming general counsel of Minute Clinic when the clinic had 85 um, locations. And by the time I left, we moved, we were up to 560, I believe. So when I was at Minute Clinic, I started as general counsel and then migrated and took on HR as well. Minute clinics were very contentious, especially with the medical community. And my theory was if we started to partner with the medical community, they would become a lot more receptive to the innovation that was happening. And so from there, I took on the role leading our strategic partnerships and initially formed a relationship with Cleveland Clinic that was parlayed into many other healthcare and health system relationships and ultimately helped the the medical community become much more used to and accustomed with retail clinics. From there, I uh, left and was going to take some time off 
and was approached to become the chief compliance officer for one of the largest PBMs in the country. But it was under the guise of I would take on that role and then hopefully take on more operating responsibility. And when I was there, I did so and took responsibility or became the executive sponsor for the Medicaid line of business when Medicaid plans were getting into the pharmacy space in a much um, more robust way. From there, I took on a operating role where I became president of a on-site clinic company that ran clinics in school districts and on Indian reservations. So it was uh, innovation in that space, and I don't think anybody has done it since, but we had to really get into the weeds around how do we develop a EMR, how does that EMR integrate with some of the systems that exist in those different facilities and in the communities, especially in the, the tribal space. So that was, that was very interesting and very rewarding, but I was recruited to go run operations ultimately at Red Brick Health. And there I was responsible for all of the ETL functions and the implementation and anything that touched any consumer from the technical perspective. We did implementations, onboarding, every back-end component except the actual software development. And when I was at Red Brick, my CEO, I guess, had a lot of faith in me. And as problems arose in the business, he deployed me to different functions to solve for them. So when I was running operations, we decided to insource our clinical services and that needed to be built from scratch. So all of the telephonic coaching, hiring all of the systems, we had to stand that up rather quickly. We hired about 150 coaches, had a new platform and launched it in six months. And from there, we had some IT um, cleaning up to do, I should say. And never having really run an IT shop, he had confidence that I could go in and look at how to solve the problems that we were facing and deal with just some uh, performance issues, some cybersecurity concerns, all of the different components that people in IT have to address to assure that their system and their internal operations are performing to the highest level. And that's where I'm led to today, where I'm consulting in the government program space and then co-founded a financial health insurance company of sorts. All right. Let's just stop for a second because you just said he had a lot of confidence in you. And most of our guests end up teeing us up to go distinctly in one direction. And mm -hmm. so it sounds like from everything you just described, Sarah, that even in just hearing what you said, anyone I think would have a lot of confidence in you. It sounds like you have a very robust background and a great skill set for really just tackling things, executing and, and getting results. And that's what they were um, trusting. So, you know, I, I just want to call that out, even in listening to you, your background is super impressive. 
Can we go back to one of the things you said earlier about the EMR work on the Indian Reservation? You mentioned it was really rewarding. Can you tell us a little more about that experience? Yeah, so uh, it was the EMR work, but more broadly than that, we had to solve for an access problem in healthcare. And the access problem was for both of our different types of clients, one for school districts, where if teachers wanted to get healthcare, it was very hard for them to leave work. They'd have to take time off. And so implementing a on-site clinic in the different school districts was critical in helping them uh, have continuity of care, get the proper treatment, and deal with some of the uh, more persistent healthcare issues that they were facing. So that was the first. And then on tribal reservations, the Indian community has had a history of not having the best access to healthcare, whether it's because they're rural-based or because the health insurance doesn't necessarily extend to those types of um, services that are always in the community. And so this is a population that has historically been underserved. Being able to go onto a reservation, set up a clinic, help deal with some of the incredibly complicated and pervasive issues that exist in a, in a, reser- in a reservation was incredibly rewarding. There's a high uh, incidence of alcoholism, of diabetes. So just being able to tackle some of those problems and seeing a difference made the work incredibly satisfying. Yeah, definitely not an easy problem to solve. The environment itself has some very unique challenges. And, you know, the population health issues there, specific to really, you know, any community we could look at in America or certain populations, um, the two you called out in particular, you know, really huge problems, especially the diabetes issue, you know, across our nation, not just on a reservation. But that sounds like it was also a really unique experience. Yes, absolutely. It uh, kind of continued my experience in working in new industries, innovative parts of the market, and doing things in the healthcare space that had never been done anymore or were early market entrants. Well, Sarah, thank you for that update and just kind of general overview of how you got to here. But can we spend some time talking about what you're up to these days? I guess ultimately I'd like I'd like to hear your take on what's going on with the star ratings and sort of your connection with Physician Compare. You know, we Robin and I are talking a lot about the reputational impact that doctors and clinicians face based on their participation in these different government programs, but we'd really like to hear it from your perspective and you know, what goes into creating these star ratings and what is it that they're actually trying to communicate to users. Sure. So maybe I can give you a little bit of background about star ratings and what they are and how they are positioned in the market today. Does that make sense? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So star ratings are given by the federal government, by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, and to health plans. They rate each of the health plan contracts that exist. And what they do, it's essentially like a report card. So the plans go out, they offer services to beneficiaries, the beneficiaries sign up for the plans, and then there are various domains on which the plans are rated. And those those domains are staying healthy, 
managing chronic conditions, member experience with the health plan, member complaints and changes in plan performance, and health plan customer service. These plans are ranked on a one to five star scale. And within each of those domains, there's various different measures. And the goal of this is similar to a report card, giving the plan a rating every single year. However, the importance of star ratings is critical because it enables the plans to either increase the services that they provide or it puts them in a place where they could go out of business. The reason for this is that the federal government gives plans a bonus payment for scoring four stars or higher. So think of it as my parents say to me, we're gonna give you a car if you, or that would be very lucky, uh, they'll give you an increase in your allowance if you get A's or above, um, A's, A's plus, uh, whatnot. And similarly, parents can punish kids if they get certain grades at or below, for example, a C. This is the same thing that the federal government is doing. So four-star plans are getting bonus payments and plans at three stars and below are struggling. What the bonus payments are, um, they're paid out for two different functions. One is to either provide additional services to the beneficiary or supplemental benefits, for example, like Uber or Lyft rides, or they go back to the beneficiary in reduced premiums. These allow the plans to compete on a much more robust basis. So the star ratings have a huge uh, impact on how the plan actually gets members, retains members, and drives the financial performance. So that is the, that's the framework in which the star ratings exist today. Does that make sense? It does, and I'll, I'll just say one thing and then pass it over to Robin, but it's interesting because we hear about the star ratings for providers on provider profiles, like the folks that take Medicare. They have their own star ratings, and I have actually not known about this, that the, that the plans themselves also have star ratings, so it's really kind of I guess showing how complex the federal government is when it comes time to make a payment on any sort of claim or service. Pretty incredible. Yeah, absolutely. It is is very complicated. So tell us how that pertains to what you're doing now. So what I am doing is I'm I'm working with organizations to figure out how they can position themselves themselves to best serve their clients or prospective clients. We're looking at Medicare plans and dissecting their star ratings to say, where do they need improvement? So for example, if they have a very low star rating on the percent of people who get a flu shot, the question becomes, well, how do we increase that completion rate? And what tools can we deploy to help these plans? And it's done across the board on 
all the different measures. But the one that is the most important these days is consumer satisfaction. It accounts for, in some way, shape, or form, about 40% of the star ratings. So there's a lot of pressure and focus by these plans right now to offer additional programs, innovative services, um, doing whatever it takes to retain current beneficiaries and get new membership. So we're drawing a parallel to the merit-based incentive payment system. There are metrics that our physicians have to meet and we help them do it. You're just doing it really from the payer side. So Sarah, when you talk about measuring patient satisfaction, are they using the CAP measures and CG CAP and using those same set of metrics? They are. Yeah, they use CAPs and they use different, like how would you rate your providers? There's a number of different either consumer responses or, for example, the number of complaints that CMS receives. That's a proxy for consumer satisfaction. And there are a number of items like that. But the CAP survey is very important. Let me ask you a question, because I share a passion for what you're doing due to personal experience. Why do you feel it's so important for you to be intersecting in this space to see these plans perform well? For me, it's how do you, the question is, how do you drive better care in a system where there's a finite amount of dollars? And Medicare is one of those programs where there's much more of a level playing field to a certain extent. And so doctors have to compete in different ways. And a lot of it is just driving that experience, which historically seniors have not had great care or arguably there are places where they have not had great care. So seeing how seniors can benefit from these services, how they live longer, how they also have a better a livelihood that exists that may not otherwise have if they were in a assisted living facility or a nursing home. So these are really helping seniors stay in their current conditions, increase their happiness and improve their health conditions and just overall outlook. Yeah, no, so speaking about the patient satisfaction surveys and if that's really like People are, you know, they get this questionnaire and it says, you know, how easy was it to make an appointment at this particular office or how friendly was the staff or how long were your wait times and all that's great. And if that makes up 40% of the star rating, what makes up the other 60? Is it a specific set of measures? And if so, can you take us through what those are? Yeah, so they're, um, think of like HEDIS measures health outcome surveys, various different kind of standard industry ways of rating health performance, health outcomes. And they use that and get that from various types of data sources and roll it up so it's much more objective than how a consumer ranks their plan. Yeah, so all of those measures are, they're posted on CMS's website. So everybody has access to them. I can go pull them today. And it's very clear how plans are rated and the basis on which. It's complicated. It's hundreds of pages of technical notes, but plans know exactly how they're being, these scores are being calculated. 
All right. So let me ask you a question. There are some measures, you know, the physicians get a score and this is what beneficiaries have in the marketplace to kind of gauge someone by. It's great that, you know, it's, it's objective, it's standardized, and, you know, it's not some angry patient that was in the waiting room for 20 minutes on Yelp telling them. It's, it's the government telling them in a very structured and systematic way how they performed on certain metrics and criterion for the year. And sometimes we look around and with the big arena that healthcare is, thinking about patient experience, thinking about quote-unquote quality, sometimes Joy and I have felt at different times that it's not always representative of the actual quality, what's being rendered, what's being delivered. And there's been different times as the rules and legislation and these metrics have evolved that it's, it's you know, we're hard pressed to believe that it's an accurate representation of everything someone could expect or their interactions and experience and outcome. How do you feel about the metrics that have been set up for these payers and how it's presented in the marketplace? The metrics are, let's just say they're evolving. Um, it's never ideal to have metrics where you could, one, for example, with a CAP survey, you take a small portion of the population, which may not really reflect what is happening in the market. You may um, just have gotten a adverse selection, so a, a sicker population enrolled than normal, and the plan just may not have been able to predict it. So I think CMS does the best job that it can, but that is why it continues to refine these measures. Its Center for Innovation puts out different programs, different value-based insurance design programs that allow plans to innovate and do things to help drive outcomes, member satisfaction that enable them to get bonus payments or there's financial incentives around launching these things that may supplement those metrics. So it's, you know, like most, most of these different types of programs, it's never ideal, but CMS continually refines this and I think does the best job that I can. Yeah. Then, you know, psychology tells us the people that respond to a survey most times are people that are either uber happy about something or really dissatisfied. Also, by the time that survey does show up or someone replies, you bring up the thing about the small sample size, that statistically that can be a skew, along with just, you know, the the bias or even the time lapse, for goodness sakes, right? Um, Mm Of what's gone on before they fill in the bubble. So, and it's timely, it's also costly. So it's, uh, like you said, it is evolving and consumer experience is also something that is so hard to put a set of metrics around to CMS's credit, I guess, because different people value different things. As a mom, some days I value speed. Other times, I don't mind waiting 20 minutes and seeing three specialists if it's the right thing to do for the best outcome. So, you know, it it depends on each person and their unique circumstances as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'll add to that. I mean, we definitely understand that CMS and working with all these regulations, it's an iterative process where every single year we've got lessons learned and, you know, the application of those lessons in whatever way is possible. And I believe new to us is that they are introducing an API, right, Mm -hmm. that has to do, that's connected to the EMRs that is also tied to star ratings. What can you tell us about that? So, it's the, the blue button API, as it's called, uses the HL7 Fire API. 
And the, the genesis of this is Seema Verna, who is the administrator for CMS, had a personal story where her father was in the hospital, I believe, and in order to get effective care, they needed access to his medical records. And to do that, it was incredibly complicated, cumbersome, and created huge barriers in getting better. So what CMS has done is said, everybody needs to have a right to access their health records. This is a, something that was set forth in HIPAA. It was laid out in legislation and has never really been taken advantage of to the full extent until now. And what CMS has done is they've developed this API so that beneficiaries can request access to their data. And so they can connect their health information to other services and applications they trust. So there becomes an interconnectedness to the healthcare system that never existed before, but it allows the beneficiary to control access, who may access it, when they can, their right to revoke that access. Um, all of those different things that HIPAA laid out, now we're actually seeing that deployed in real life. As it relates to star ratings, what CMS has done is they've said, health plans, healthcare providers, you need to put this in place. It is becoming a requirement. And so CMS has said in informal guidance that it will begin to link star ratings to plans implementing the blue button API. So plans that don't or delay may get dinged in some way on their star ratings. I understand. So it's kind of in the whole promotion of interoperability or patients being able to take their information anywhere and then the plan themselves get rewarded basically for providing that information to them through the blue button. Now, as a patient or a user, is there a blue button app? Like, is that something available on the app store that people can put on their phones or computers or whatever? And that's how they would, you know, be the keepers of all of their data? It's controlled by CMS. So it's available on the CMS site, and that's how people would begin to use it. The thing, the thing that's fascinating for me is there's been a ton of money spent on connecting different services and programs and providers. And it's, this is a much more simpler solution because it's an open API. And if a beneficiary says, I want, for example, United Healthcare to get additional information on me, they can grant that access and then United can consume it. So it, it really becomes much more simple from a interoperability perspective and from a regulatory perspective. So it's also not specific just to Medicare, right? Any commercial payer is also hope it intended to have the blue button. Well, ultimately it would be great, but the only, the only organization or agency that has a complete set of data really is CMS. And even, not even for Medicaid, primarily just for Medicare. 
So unfortunately, it really only exists in the Medicare space. Well, that's good to know. I mean, and it's still a work in progress. It's just something that, again, I'm sure over the years, will the data will continue to get more and more robust. Absolutely. I could see uh, CMS doing this for the state, uh, you know, exchanges or different individual plans where there's certain, there may be public funding, but right now CMS has, has taken on a lot by even just launching this in the Medicare space. Sarah, if you look three, five, eight years ahead, and you think about the ratings on the plans and their iterations and evolution, and you think about this reload of the blue button, it's, a, it's called 2.0, right? Con- concurrent with CMS, you know, making sure no one's data blocking. Where do you see this evolving to if you were to have a crystal ball for healthcare in general and for, this, for CMS? For the beneficiaries... I think you will see much more personalized programs and services so that health plans focus on an N of one and there will be technology to help enable that. And we see some of it today that's, that's starting, which is very exciting for the health plans. I suspect there will be a lot of consolidation. So as plans become three star and below and are not performing well, they will go on the market to be sold because plans, um, higher performing plans can take on those beneficiaries and increase the number of lives that they cover. So there's going to become a much, I think a much smaller market of health plans that are participating in the MA space, I'd say the traditional plans. Now we'll also see the innovators continue to pop up like Oscar and Clover and Bright Health. So I still am curious to see how they will compete in this space when it's a, it's a very complicated area and competing with the big plans can be hard. On the provider side, I think you will see a pressure for providers to figure out how to deal with the Medicare rates. As more and more people are becoming Medicare eligible, providers will obviously have to correspondingly take on more Medicare patients or may have to. And the Medicare rates are much less favorable than the commercial rates. So providers, I suspect, will struggle with how do you continue to serve a population that is growing, but deal with the ability to influence pricing through network contracts to the extent that they can in the commercial space. So that's my thought for what it's worth, but things change very, very quickly, especially with the political dynamics that exist around this. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I have to tell you, I have a, I call it an RR wagon. That's a Robin Roberts wild ass guess. And Mm -hmm. so I am inclined to believe that across the three pieces of this, uh, the three legged stool, if you will, the patients, the payers and the providers, that what you said is absolutely going to happen. And as someone who had a very medically complex child with a very rare disease, and ended up with Medicaid, 
as a result of a necessity for a disability, along with private insurance through our employer. And watching my grandparents age, and my grandmother dealing with dementia, my grandfather in and out of rehab, on Medicare along with replacement at different periods of time, that I am inclined to believe with everything you just threw out there. And I worry about possible unintended consequences of the consolidation of those systems as these metrics evolve and what's going on. So I share a deep passion to hear that you are out there to help these payers, to help these plans take what's useful, take what's actionable, and in a very efficient way, act on it ASAP, because I worry about the end-to-end effect that happens at a clinician and consumer level, which personally is where I believe healthcare occurs. It's between me and my doctor, the patient and the physician. And so I really liked hearing your perspective on it and couldn't agree more. So I just want to say that I, I think it's so neat what you're doing and helping them navigate this stuff. And I feel like these people can't stick their head in the sands anymore, whether you're a payer or a physician. It's just some of these folks are going to get steamrolled. They're going to be put out of business, like you said earlier. Yep. I think it's also interesting how so much of what's happening in, for example, retail and in non-healthcare spaces, they're bringing it into healthcare. Um, recently, Best Buy acquired companies that allows the retail provider to serve more seniors in the Medicare Advantage space. So they're getting the sense that this is a population that needs to be served in a different way. There's a company that I'm doing some work with that now provides essentially grandparents on demand for seniors who need companionship. So they deploy college students to seniors' homes so that they can have transportation, play bridge, go grocery shopping, things that just allow them to get out of the house and increase their quality of life. So I think we're seeing a lot of these things and these different companies pop up that will help enable this in a, in a positive way going forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's a group here. I'm I'm based out of San Diego, and there's um, a company my husband volunteers with that basically helps um, folks over Medicare age, you know, go grocery shopping or take out their Christmas decorations from their garage, just the kinds of things that need a little bit of extra elbow grease or some heavy lifting to help them along so that they can maintain their day-to-day. And I'd love to see more of that. Yeah, me too. Sarah, could you tell us about an experience in any of your robust professional background where maybe one experience or prior role maybe really helped color your perspective or your approach on something because you've you've done some distinctly unique things as well and maybe the impact it had on either a project or something you knew you took on when i was at minute clinic there was a time where there was a flu outbreak and we had to figure out a way to deploy Uh, nurse practitioners and individuals that can give flu shots very, very quickly. And as executives, we had to roll up our sleeves and start working the clinics. And for me, it became very real who we were helping, what our mission was, why we were fighting the fight to get into new markets and battle the medical community and how this type of care being innovative could really help 
change the world. So that, that I would say is one of them. And then the other is more recently, when I was working at Red Brick Health, one of our clients, which uh, is a Medicare and a Medicaid plan, there was an individual who was engaged in telephonic coaching who went into a crisis. And I can't elaborate on it because of health information associated with it, but let's just say it was potentially a life and death situation. And we were able to go in and work with the health plan to coordinate care very, very rapidly and help this individual overcome any issues that could have created a much more severe healthcare situation. Um, so th those are a couple of experiences. And then personally, uh, my family and I have had a number of areas where we've dealt with the medical community and seen changes that need to take place and have come up against barriers that many people experience and see the need for, for why change is so critical. That's really neat, especially in here, knowing about the evolution of the clinic with the first example, you were talking about how it kind of came on the scene and was seemingly disruptive and really kind of, you know, put they as an organization put themselves at odds very early on. And now it, which the work they did in paving that way really has filled a huge void that's so appreciated and collaborative still, really. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah, if people would like to find you or follow you somewhere on the socials, where would they where would they go? They can follow me on LinkedIn or you can reach me at sratner at healthehr.io. All right. And then we've been trying to collect a good book list. Are there any good books you've been reading lately that you'd like to share? Uh, there's two. One is Educated, which is a New York Times bestseller about a woman who grows up in Utah and doesn't ever have health care and doesn't go to school. So that's fantastic. And then the other is Bad, Bad Blood about what happened with Theranos. So those are two, two recent ones, I'd say. Well, thanks for, again, for taking the time to talk with us. We are excited to share this episode and you with our listeners. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes. Or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more about Chirpy Bird at www.chirpybirdllc.com.